Well, today I have the privilege of beginning a new series. I'm calling this series and the very first message of this series by the same name, Grace, the Undiluted Gospel. I have asked the Holy Spirit in the humblest way I know how to communicate, to express, if you will, through these messages, the gospel of grace in its purest yet simplest form. It does us no good if we talk over people's heads. And so my heart has always been, throughout my ministry, is to make it pure and to make it plain. If you were to mix a gallon of ketchup into a gallon of root beer, you would have ruined them both. The ketchup is no longer fit for your hamburger. The root beer is no longer fit to drink. Would you agree with that? Unless you're really into experiments. Jesus told us that you cannot, you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. Did he say that? He did say that. He said you cannot put new wine into old wineskins. In doing so, both are ruined. The new wine and the wineskin, they both end up on the ground. There was no fault of the wine. There was no fault of the skin. But when you bring those two together, it creates a problem, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that to them? I mean, he was talking to his disciples, maybe a few other listeners at that day. But have you ever wondered, in fact, I never really gave it much thought until in the quietness of my study yesterday, why would you tell them something like that? Was this just a chemistry lesson that Jesus was giving them? No, it's not a chemistry lesson. You see, they would have already been familiar with that reality. So Jesus is telling them something they already know. <laughs> Somebody in their ancestry has already tried that, and they've said, son, that doesn't work when those two things come together. So Jesus is telling them something they already know. And that's because he wanted them to see a deeper and more profound, a far-reaching truth that went beyond the wine, and beyond the skins. You see, the old wineskins represent the law. The scriptures tell us that there is no problem with the law. The law is good, the law is holy, and the law is righteous. Now let me ask you a question, and think about this, because it's kind of a trick question. You might want to answer it just in your own heart. The question is, did God find fault with the law? Remember, I just said the law is good, the law is holy, and the law is righteous, and it came from God. Did he find fault with the law? The answer is no. What he found fault with was the people. That's what the book of Hebrews tells us. The book of Hebrews tells us he found fault with the people. And that's because the people couldn't keep that holy standard. They couldn't keep that righteous standard. They couldn't keep that good and perfect standard. There's not a problem with the law, and there is no problem with grace. We are forever forgiven by his grace. Amen. We are forever forgiven by his grace. There is no stain. There is no blemish, no wrinkle that God's grace cannot or has not removed. 
please get that down in your heart this morning. It doesn't matter what roads you've walked down. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how stained and wrinkled you feel you are. I'm telling you, there is nothing beyond the Father's reach when He reaches out through His loving grace. Grace has the power to give us a one-time bath. I want you to think about that. It would sure be nice. It would save a lot of time, wouldn't it? If physically we just had to take one bath and we never had to bathe again. Save us time, save us some money. Grace has the power to give us a one-time bath. The problem is created with the old wineskin. Remember, that's the law. And the new wine, grace, are mixed together. Some things are not meant to be together. There are incompatibilities with certain things. And when a believer adds the law, or another way to say it, they add their performance. They even add their own obedience to Jesus' finished work on the cross. When you add anything to what he's done, his grace, in an effort to maintain or retain your salvation, it's like adding new wine to an old wineskin. Both will be on the ground. Friends, I'm speaking from experience. I spent most of my early Christianity on the ground. Do you know what I mean by that? On the ground. Did you ever notice that when grace, the undiluted gospel, when it began to take root in your heart over the months, maybe over the years, that your prayer life began to change? It began to radically change. You didn't know exactly what to do with it. You didn't know exactly how to pray. The first thing you may have discovered is that you didn't pray as long and you didn't pray as frequently as you once did. Now, I'm not against prayer, friends. We walk in a state of prayer. When we walk, and if you have time uh, in the morning and evening, whenever time permits to, to find your prayer closet, whatever it may be, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I noticed a year or two into my Christian walk that my prayer life began to change. I began to pray for things as I saw them and so that I wouldn't forget them later. I began to speak a blessing over something as it happened or it was occurring in real time. And so I noticed my prayer life began to change. I believe today it's more powerful than it ever was, to be honest with you, under this gospel of grace. Would you like to know why your prayer life changes once you come under this gospel of grace? Would you like to know why? Now, I can't speak for you, but I think I can speak for me. It's because so much of my prayer time was spent repenting. And so much of my prayer time was spent crying, sobbing. And so much of my prayer time was spent begging God to forgive me. Begging God to forgive the things that I had thought that were not quite right or the things I had said or done that were not quite right. So much of my prayer time was spent just asking God to forgive me, repenting, crying. And then, I don't know, but it seemed like once I was moved to tears. Tears about what? Tears that I was sorry <laughs> of something that I felt like I had done. But once I felt like I had been moved to tears... You know what it did? It felt like I was clean. I wasn't any cleaner than before I started praying, but it felt that way. Emotions are a powerful thing. I felt clean now, and now I felt like God would hear me when I pray. 
God would move upon that which I prayed for. I felt like I could bombard heaven with a list of things that I felt like God needed to do on my behalf and the behalf of the people I loved. Under grace, we are forgiven once for all. And our beggar's coats have been removed. We do not wear beggar's coats. In case you're wondering what a beggar's coat is, they slipped them over the shoulders of blind men. The government actually issued them in those days so that you could see a blind man, even from a distance. And you could say, that man is a blind man. He's a beggar. He had no other way to earn a living. But as you notice, when Bartimaeus met Jesus, Jesus healed him of his blindness. And the Bible says he left behind his coat. Bartimaeus left behind his coat because he realized, I will not be on the side of the road begging anymore. And so when I go to God in prayer, I don't beg for anything. I talk to him like he's my father. Valerie and I took our son Tanner and his girlfriend to lunch yesterday. As we sat down, his girl that I've never met before, she said, I can pay for our lunch. And my son Tanner said, oh, my daddy's not going to let you do that. How does he know that? Because he's been with me time and time and time again. And guess what? My son never begs me. (laughs) He never begs me to say, daddy, let me pick up the bill here today. He's just already conceded. Daddy's with him. Daddy loves him. Daddy cares for him. Daddy will take care of him. And it's my delight. It's my joy to bless my kids. Don't you think it's the Father's delight? Don't you think it's His joy? Don't you think it's His heart to bless His children? And our prayers are not going to move Him to do what He already wants to do any quicker than if we didn't pray. But I'm not saying we don't pray. Please don't get me wrong here. But I'm saying what we do is we come into agreement with the Word. And once we've spoken that Word, we begin to thank Him for His goodness. We begin to thank Him for His heart to move up on any given situation that we might be facing or someone that we love. And so I began to see that radical shift in my prayer life. I began to see that I didn't have a list when I came to God to pray about. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the list, but as I recall, there were 613 commandments that were written down on lists. And you almost had to go to the list and memorize everything you won't do and everything you will do in order to stay in the covenant with God under the old covenant. Am I right? Under grace, the undiluted gospel, we have been empowered. Come on, think about it now. We have been empowered with everything that we once stormed heaven's gates for. You already have the power. The scriptures say, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. We have everything on the inside of us, yet we're always reaching. We're always pulling from here and there. Friends, I'm telling you, under grace, We don't need to be doing that kind of nonsense. He has given us everything that we need in life that pertains to life and godliness. Is that true? God has already given us everything that we need. And so it's from the inside out. I don't need to pull anything out of heaven. Heaven lives here. 
Heaven lives on the inside of me. Jesus is here. The Father is here. The Holy Spirit is here. Why am I reaching to another country, another continent, another planet when he lives here? I already have everything on the inside of me. All I do is speak it out. All I do is declare it out. You are more powerful than you know. It's true. So he has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And when the body of Christ wakes up to that reality that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. And so when we encounter chaos as we're walking along, as we encounter issues of life, listen, that's not new. It wasn't new to Jesus. It wasn't new to the disciples. It wasn't new to Paul. Everywhere they went, they ran into chaos, but they still said, he has blessed me with all spiritual blessings. That's an attitude, friends. That is a mindset is what it is that reshapes the way you pray, reshapes the way you think. It does. Perhaps we need to reconsider how we pray. Maybe we should rephrase our petitions from Father, bless them to Father. How can you bless them through me? Isn't that simple? Most believers pray too many, Father, bless them on people. Many times we don't stop and go, Father, how can you bless them? But how can I be a part of this blessing? In the book of Luke, chapter 6, and verse 38, we find these words. Look at these words. Jesus said these words. He said, give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet with all, it shall be measured to you again. Is that what he said? Jesus said, give, and it shall be given unto you. And he said, it's a good measure. It's pressed down. You ever do that? We used to do that with our laundry baskets before we carried them to the laundromat. It was rough trying to carry two or three baskets, so we would get on top of them and press them down, shake them together, and they were still running over. (laughs) Now, what I'm about to say to you, on the way here today, I thought, maybe I'll take this out of the message. Maybe I won't say anything about this because it seems too pragmatic. It seems too practical. And I got to keep it spiritual, right? I got to keep this thing spiritual. Friends, we live in a practical world. It's a spiritual world, but it's very practical as well. And then before service, Treva walked up to me and said something, and the Holy Spirit said, do you hear her? You need to put that back in there. A Facebook friend of mine, a gospel minister, a grace minister, preaches this message all over the world, thousands of followers, has a website, has social media platforms, has podcasts, and preaches the same kind of message we preach. A couple of weeks ago, my friend sent me a private message and just said, pray for me. My family's going through some things, and we need your prayers. I typed back and I said, what kind of things are you going through? My friend said, I have a couple of relatives that are facing some dire situations, medical situations. And then my friend made it known what the need was. It was $165. You can tell we're dealing with a different country, can't you? (laughs) You can't even get through the revolving doors on a hospital for $165 here. And when I got done chatting there, I immediately said, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do here? Holy Spirit said, help. Help her. 
And so we wired some Western Union money. And see, this is the reason I wanted to take this out of here because I don't want to ever draw any attention to me. And if you've sat under this ministry long enough, you'll see that I don't draw much attention to me. It's all to him, right? And so he said, well, help her. You have the ability. And so I did. And I left that alone until Friday night when I was sitting in my office and I chatted my friend and I said, by the way, how's your family? Was your medical need met? What I told her to do was to post it on her social media platform. I said, you need to take this need. This need's bigger than you. Take this need to your friends and your family and the need will get met. And so when I reached out to her on Friday evening, I said, was the need met? You know what she said to me? She said, you were the only one that gave. You were the only one that gave other than an aunt who knew the problem was going on. But in terms of reaching out to these thousands of friends who she preaches the gospel to, she said, you're the only one that gave. Now see why I didn't want to put this in here? Because I'm not trying to draw any attention to me. What I'm trying to draw the attention to is because when I went back on her site, I saw all these bless you, the father's faithful, and I get all that stuff, friends. But look, it says in that scripture right there, given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together. And then it says, shall men give into your bosom. I've never had a $100 bill float down out of heaven. And if it did, it wouldn't have Benjamin Franklin's picture on it. It'd have somebody else's picture on it, but it wouldn't be his. What I've come to see in ministry is it all goes away. Kind of like Valerie was saying, it all goes away unless the, the practicality of this part is met. And so you know what I did? I got back on the site again, the Western Union again, and I said, here's the rest of it. It doesn't matter what happens. The thing is, is we have to listen to the Father when there are practical needs. Sometimes it's not just money. Sometimes when you're going to pray for somebody, it's to call them up and pray for them. Forget about just going to your prayer closet and saying, Father, bless them. If they're on your heart, what's the matter with your phone? Call them up. It's going to mean a lot more to them if you call them up and pray for them than it would be if you just told me, yeah, I was praying for you the other day. I'm telling you, it will mean more. I spent a lot of time on the phone. I spent a lot of time reaching out to people and other people reaching out to me and praying for them and encouraging them and speaking life into them and using wisdom to help them in their situation. See, this is what real Christianity looks like. This is what real grace looks like. I said to Treva as we talked, I said, you know the scripture in the Bible where it talks about a man knocking on your door and he's hungry and you just say to him, bless you, I wish you well. That's not what he needs at that moment. He needs a loaf of bread at that moment. So Christianity has some practical things to it. But we must always be listening to the Spirit. And I would tell people that will be listening to our voice from Triumphant Grace Ministries, I would say to you right now, I want you to consider supporting the ministers you listen to, whoever they may be. I want you to consider supporting their ministry. It will go a long way to help them in their outreach of this gospel. You see, it's hard for believers to admit. It's hard for believers to accept that they have gotten some things wrong when their biblical worldview was being established. Many have underestimated grace. They think it's something that you just pray to get saved with, and they think it's something that you pray before a meal. Oh, friends, it's so much greater, so much larger, so much broader than that. It's the undiluted gospel. 
And you know what people do? Sometimes they turn to another gospel. The gospel that the Apostle Paul said is no gospel at all. Do you know why he said that? Because what they did is they put new wine in an old wineskin. And Paul said, that's not the gospel. It was the gospel before it went in there. But it's not the gospel anymore. It doesn't contain life. The laws of God, the rules of God do not contain life. They can't help us live. They put us in bondage. A gospel that the Apostle Paul said, if anyone should preach any other gospel than Christ crucified, he said, let them be accursed or let them be condemned. Now that is strong language. Did you see how protective he was of the gospel? He said, I wish that you just be condemned because you are not giving people what they need. They've told you what they need. You've just said, I wish you well, bless you. Sounds religious, sounds spiritual. Now, I'm not saying any one of us can bless every single need that comes before our eyes, comes before our ears. That's why you have to be listening to the Holy Spirit, because he will direct you in what to do. You quiet yourself before him. You take him in and listen to his voice. And so when you add something to Christ crucified, it's no longer the gospel. They don't even realize it when they add their own wisdom. They add their own efforts. They add their own works. They add their own performance. They add their own eloquence even. And I've heard some people, they can talk up a storm. They're so eloquent. They just flow. They have such glib. they just off the cuff. I don't consider myself one of those people. I'm very thoughtful as to what I say. But when you do that, and you're trusting in your own stuff, your own bag of tricks like Felix the cat, you know. When you're trusting in your own stuff, you know what you do? You empty the cross of its power. You empty the cross of its power. The power of the cross is love. The love that released the forgiveness of sins and the love that introduced us to grace, the undiluted gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, we find these words. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize. Now, look, I don't know of any preacher that doesn't do a baptism somewhere. You're going to do some weddings. You're going to do some funerals. You're going to do all kinds of things. But Paul said, hey, that's not the main reason he sent me. He didn't send me just to baptize. And as ministers, we are going to be there for you when your kids are hatched. We are going to be there for you when your friends are matched. And we are going to be there for you when your loved ones are dispatched. We are going to be there for you. But the Apostle Paul said, that's not the reason I came. It wasn't just to baptize people. John the Baptist did that. He said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but look at these words, but to preach the gospel. Come on. The gospel means good news. He said, he sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom, that means man's wisdom, and not with eloquence, that means man's eloquence. God can drop wisdom into your heart. He does it to me all the time. I don't have to be in a church for him to drop wisdom in my heart. He drops eloquence in our hearts as we go. He says, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. 
He's saying basically when you mix your ideologies, your nonsense with the power of the cross that has the ability to clean you up once and for all and you start mixing in more stuff, he says, you have emptied the cross of its power. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Beautiful, isn't it? Friends, it's a challenge for the body of Christ to embrace the truth that all Jesus is looking for is our hearts. Nothing more, come on, nothing less. He's not looking for soldiers. He's looking for sons. He's not looking for deputies. He's looking for daughters. The scriptures tell us that when the Roman soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you remember reading that, right? You know what happened? Peter drew a sword and he cut off one of the ears of the soldiers. Now let me ask you some questions. In that moment, In that moment when Peter drew his sword and cut off the ear, in that moment, was Peter acting more like a soldier or was Peter acting more like a son? He was acting like a soldier, wasn't he? I mean, Peter is operating by pure emotions. It's not only not spiritual to cut off somebody's ears, but it's not even practical considering there's a band of men that have come. A band is one-tenth of a legion. That's 600 men. 600 men plus Judah, 601 men are standing there. There's a few disciples in Jesus. Peter's not trusting in Jesus at that moment. He's trusting in his own sword. That's why he didn't look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? No, he drew his sword. So he is totally in the emotional realm. He's attached to Jesus. I get it. I don't know what I would do, to be honest with you, if I'm with Jesus for three and a half years and they came to get him. I can't tell you for sure. Peter is still under an old covenant, friends. Jesus has not died yet. Jesus has not been crucified. He's not been buried. He's not being resurrected. They are still under an old covenant. The new covenant does not begin at Matthew chapter 1. The new covenant begins with Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected from the grave. That's when the new covenant starts. He was acting like a soldier. Let me ask you another question. And how is cutting off a man's ear congruent? That means, how is it compatible with grace, the undiluted gospel? It's not. It's a gallon of ketchup mixed with a gallon of root beer. It's new wine and an old wineskin. It's wearing the beggar's coat all over again, and it empties the cross of its power. You know what Jesus would say to Peter? Look at these words. Matthew chapter 26, verses 52 and 53. Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, that's just an ambiguous word there when we think about 12 legions of angels. Remember, I said a legion is 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 times 12 is 72,000. Jesus said, I can call on my daddy, and my daddy will send 72,000 angels. Why would he say something like, yes, it's hyperbole, but yes, it's true at the same time. If he sent one angel, that would be enough. 
Send a 14-foot angel one time. Let him stand in front of you like Mr. Clean. I'm telling you, those guys would have ran for their dear lives if someone like that would have showed up. What was Jesus saying when he said, Peter, put away your sword? He was saying, Peter, the sword is not compatible with my mission of love, and it dilutes the gospel of grace. Friends, God was not the one who cut off our ears. Religion did that all by itself. It put us in a position where we couldn't hear because we were too busy repenting. It put us in a position we were too busy praying for other things and not listening to the Holy Spirit. Religion will cut your ears off. The sword is like new wine in an old wineskin. It ruins everything. Jesus was saying, Peter, I didn't come to make ears fall to the ground. I came to fall into the ground. You see, the word says, except a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Jesus is talking about himself. He's the grain of wheat that he's talking about. And he said, unless that grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. Nobody will be able to come to heaven, friends. Nobody will be grafted in. You will abide alone, Jesus. But he said, but if it dies, or but if I die, it brings forth much fruit, or I will bring forth much fruit. I think I've told this story before, some variation of it somewhere along the line. But when I was in third grade, there was an occasion when I was selling tickets to an ice cream social that my school was having and I can still see myself going up that road that I lived on. And I went and knocked on this one door, and a little old lady came to the door, and she said, Yes, son. And I said, I'm selling ice cream social tickets that we're holding at our school here in the near future. She said to me, Well, I wouldn't be interested. I'm not going to be able to make the ice cream social, but I'll take a couple of those tickets. I said, Fine. She handed me the $2. And I went to hand her the two tickets, and she said, oh, no, I, I can't take those tickets. And in my little third-grade brain, I couldn't figure it out. It was shoplifting in reverse, you know. <laughs> it was. I mean, I was thinking, what kind of transaction is this? Nobody prepared me for something like this. I've taken your money, but you have no product in return. I felt like I would be cheating her, you know. Therefore, I refused to take the tickets back. And when I got home, I told my foster mother about what had happened. I felt like I had done the right thing. I told her what had happened, and she politely corrected my understanding of donations and encouraged me not to do that again. You see, at the time, I had no understanding of grace, the undiluted gospel. I'm talking about the kind of grace that gives and expects nothing in return. That's grace. It gives, but expects nothing in return. Friends, it's a hard thing for us to let go. I'm telling you to let go of our indoctrinations. That means the way we have been programmed with. We think for every sneeze, there ought to be a bless you. We think for every thank you, there ought to be a you're welcome. We think for every gift we give, that there ought to be a gift given in return. 
It's a great challenge to let go of the doctrines that we cut our religious molars on. We have a tendency to hold tight to our belief system as a child would cling to their teddy bear. And even though our religious teddy bears are missing an eye, and even though their ears have been chewed off, and even though they've been discolored, and even though, they're, boy, they're just in bad shape, the stuffing's falling out of them, we refuse to let go of them. After all, it's sacrilegious to discard a friend that we've been with so long. As a child, we learned to trust in our teddy bears to bring us comfort when we were afraid. We trusted in our teddy bears to keep us safe and to be our companion as we slept. We've done the very same thing with our own religious performance. Even though we're an adult now, we're still performing like a child because we learned our belief system as we were growing. But guess what? All of that stuff, you know what it does? It empties the cross of its power. It does. In his travels, Jesus encountered such a man. A man that couldn't accept that what Jesus was offering was far greater than his own material wealth. You see, the man didn't want to let go of the teddy bear of great wealth. See, a teddy bear shows up in a lot of ways, friends. Your wealth, your health, I'm for all those things. But I'm telling you, when you cling to it, and that's the most important thing in your life, friends, it is a teddy bear. You need to trust God with it. So Jesus meets a man like this in his travels. We see this truth in Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? I think it's a reasonable question. Come on, Christianity is just getting started. They don't know. We know now. We know how to lead people in prayers. But this man, I think, is genuine. I think he's just being open and honest. He said, what good thing must I do? So he's programmed in, you give me $2, I give you two tickets. He's programmed in doing stuff. Do you see that? The first question he asked Jesus is, what good thing must I do? Like somehow you can earn this salvation. What good thing must I do to get to have eternal life? Okay, park a ribbon in your mind with that question for a second. And here's what Jesus said to him. Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, that's lie. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus just reached all the way back into the Old Covenant. He picked out five commandments from the Ten Commandments, and then a commandment found in Leviticus chapter 19. The young man said to him, all these things, in other words, all the things that you just told me, he said, I've kept these things from my youth, from a child, I've kept this. I haven't committed any of these crimes. Okay, now let's move on. What do I still lack? Let me ask you a question. Was Jesus good? Of course he was. The scriptures tell us how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth and how he went about doing good, healing all those that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Jesus 
was good. But yet in these scriptures, he said, why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. In Jesus' response to the man, he wasn't denying that he was good, but he was affirming that he was God. There was a greater truth to be learned that day. He was affirming that he was God. How do you know that? Because Jesus said there was only one that was good, and we know that Jesus was good. So if Jesus is good and he said there's only one, that means he's one with the Father. He is God himself. God expressed to the Son. You say, Pastor Mark, I've noticed over the years, you tell us that we are no longer under the law, but under grace, the undiluted gospel. Yet in this encounter, Jesus instructed the man to keep the law if he wanted to enter into life. He did do that. That seems like a paradox, doesn't it? It sounds to me like keeping the law can also bring life. No, friends, the law is the ministry of death. That is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The law brings condemnation. No flesh is justified by the law. The new covenant didn't begin again until Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. When this exchange of words took place between Jesus and the rich man, they were still under an old covenant system. Jesus was not asking the man to be a better law keeper. He was simply pointing the rich man back to the impossible standards of the law. We would see even in the book of James where James would say, for whoever keeps the whole law, not just the six Jesus gave him. James would say, whoever keeps the whole law, that's all 613. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, I want to see if I can drive home James's point with you today, okay? Because that's a famous scripture right there, yet our eyes glaze over so often when we hear that. James said, if you kept the whole law, but you just broke one, he said, you are guilty of breaking them all. That's a humbling scripture. It really is. I want you to imagine with me for a moment that it takes $1,000 to enter into heaven. And at birth, you are given $1,001 bills. Now, every time you sin, it costs you a dollar. Some of us would be out of dollar bills before the end of the week, wouldn't we? We would. I hate to say it. Now, imagine with me for a moment that you get through your entire life only sinning one time. Well, an LOL belongs right there, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. But imagine you got through life and all you sinned is one time. How much money would you still have left? $999, right? But heaven costs $1,000. Under your own plan of salvation, you are lost. You put your beggar's coat back on. You fall to the ground and you bombard heaven with your prayers and tears, but it's too late. You have trusted in your own plan of salvation. You pick yourself up and you march back and forth like a little tin soldier outside of the pearly gates. But remember, 
God is not looking for soldiers. He's looking for sons. Through your own performance, you have tried to put new wine into an old wineskin, but the new wine bursts the old wineskin and all is lost. You say, Pastor Mark, then how do we carry this new wine that you speak of? How do we carry this new wine in our old wineskins? That's the problem. You can't. You can't. That's why the scriptures would say, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What are the old things that have passed away? The old covenant, the old nature, and the old wineskin, friends. Believers are new wine in new wineskins. And that was Jesus' point. When he told the rich man to obey the commandments, he was telling him that he had a skin problem that a dermatologist couldn't cure. It takes new wine and a new wineskin. Both Jesus and the rich man knew that it was impossible to keep the law. Come on. He was trying to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes, but he knew in his heart of hearts, he knew in his heart of hearts, he wasn't right. And that's why he asked Jesus, what do I still need to do? Well, if you're already doing all this stuff, why are you asking what do I still need to do? Because deep inside, you know it's not enough. And you know you failed somewhere along the line. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, friends. You see, the rich man may have not physically broken one of the commandments. Let's just give those six to him for a second. He may not physically have broken one of the commandments, Jesus' name, but Jesus said in another section, he said, if a man even looks at a woman and he lusts for that woman in his heart, he has already committed adultery with her. I don't know a single man that hasn't broken that scripture. Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, I love that. Jesus didn't say, if you want to be better, if you want to get along a little bit better in life. No, Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, it sounds to me like you're asking to be perfect because you're already keeping all these other rules. Sounds to me like you want to be perfect. And Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, I got an idea. He said, go sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Next scriptures. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? I think that's a fair question too. Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now, without context, this can be a troubling passage of scripture. Is God against a man having riches? No. God's against riches having the man. 
Why? Because people with great riches typically trust in themselves to provide. They feel like they don't need God. I'm doing just fine on my own. And if that's the mentality, then it will be that way across the board. I can't help but think every time I'm out at a restaurant and I see people across the way, I study folks, how many people never even give thanks for their food? And it seems like to me, the wealthier restaurant you sit in, the second they sit the steak down, man, they're just cutting into it and eating it. Now look, I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but what I'm saying is, my trust is in Christ. My trust is in His grace, His finished work. You see, sometimes the people with the wrong mindset, maybe even the wealthy, they just figure that they'll have the $1,000 needed to enter heaven when time comes. After all, I have done many good things with my riches. Friends, heaven will be filled with perfect people. Was it my actions that made me perfect? No! Was it my performance that made me perfect? No. Was it my behavior? No. Was it my obedience that made me perfect? No. It is the shed blood of Jesus that made us perfect. This perfection comes by grace through faith alone. Friends, the new covenant was established upon grace, the undiluted gospel. This grace helps us to let go of the sin by sin, sacrifice by sacrifice, lamb by lamb payment method. Three easy payments. Bring your lamb. Put your hands on his head. Cut its throat. Your sins are gone. No, friends. See, that's the mentality under the old covenant. And unfortunately, it's the mentality that many people have today. Every time I sin, got to get in my prayer closet. Got to fall to my knees. Got to soak the carpet. Got to bring a lamb. No! Not true. Not true at all. Our covenant is built upon trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But the rich man had been programmed. He had spent a lifetime thinking a certain way, that means. And all he did was he just trusted in his great possessions. The rich man had a mindset that he could buy ice cream, social tickets for everyone, Jesus. You'll just let me come with you. But Jesus said, I want you to give your money to the poor. Let them go to the ice cream socials. You don't need tickets with me. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. The man with great possessions had been indoctrinated. That means you've been imprinted with another currency, a currency of good works and gold watches. Jesus would tell him that it's not about being good. It's about being perfect. Did you notice, sir? I didn't say, did you want to be good? Do you want to be better? It's about being perfect. And there's something that is getting in the way of you following me. You know what it is, sir? It's your great possessions. You see, my kingdom works by grace. You're going to want to pay for everything. No, that's not how it works. My kingdom is, I feed the multitudes. This would have been a great opportunity for Jesus to get rich if he would have just charged even a dollar a meal back then, friends. 
But that is not how grace works. I pay for everything. My kingdom works by grace. The undiluted gospel through faith. Jesus was saying, friend, you're going to run out of dollar bills, but that's okay. Because if you follow me, you're going to have treasure in heaven. A treasure that is already paid for every sin you'll ever commit. Jesus was essentially saying to the rich man, your faith, sir, is in your own ability to keep the commandments. But I tell you that just by trusting in me, you will have changed wineskins. With men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Friends, I have a confession. Can I just be honest with you? It rubs me the wrong way. When anyone adds anything to Jesus' shed blood as a means of making themselves more holy, more righteous, more loved, more forgiven, more favored, more accepted, or even more secure. If you're trying to add anything to make more happen in those areas, it rubs me wrong, I'm telling you. In doing so, one is declaring that Jesus' blood was inadequate. It wasn't pure enough to make us right and to keep us right. It's such a lie. It's a lie that the enemy has been propagating for 2,000 years, that Jesus' blood was not sufficient. Paul encountered it with the Judaizers all the time. Friends, I'm telling you, get off the carpet. Quit crying your eyes out because you've sinned, because you feel like you've let God down. Pick yourself up and say, Daddy, that's not who I am. The real me, the inner man, the spirit man loves you. You've given me an undying love for you, according to Ephesians chapter 6. You love me with all your heart. And so, Daddy, help me to make better choices. There's nothing wrong with this kind of talk with him. It's the way I talk to him. The way I talk to him, friends. How many of you know that 24 karat gold is the purest of all golds. It's the kind of gold that the rich man possessed. It never changes colors, it never tarnishes, and it never fades. Why is it helpful for us to know this? Because when Jesus gave himself up for us on the cross, he washed us with his blood and through his word, which is far greater than silver or gold. And through his precious blood, he has made us holy, without blemish, blameless, wrinkle-free and stain-free. I bet you wish your clothes came out of the washer that way, don't you? Jesus has made us wrinkle-free and stain-free, without blemish. I love this. How did he do this for us? So simple. Look at the title of the message, By Grace. The undiluted gospel through faith. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, we find these words. Paul would write, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Who made you holy? Christ made you holy. Did you make yourself holy? No, he made you holy. Do you help make yourself holy? No, holy once for all. He gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Isn't that amazing? 
You say, Pastor Mark, I mean, I could say this to some people and they would say, Pastor Mark, I don't believe that. You see, because my actions and my attitudes are not always perfect. There are times when I feel like a camel and heaven's gate are the size of a needle. Friends, you are thinking like a natural man and you're thinking like a man whose Christian foundation was built upon the old covenant. Listen to me very carefully here. Every cookbook, come on ladies, talk to me if you've got a cookbook now. Every cookbook or recipe card that has been used over the years, time and time again, gets tattered and stained. Am I correct about that? I saw somebody post one the other day and it was so tattered. It had been in the family for a long time and stained. You know why? Because you're holding it in one hand that you've been kneading the flour with and you're saying, now what else do I need to do? It gets stained. It gets tattered over time. But let me ask you a question. Does a stained recipe card have anything to do with how your cookies will taste coming out of the oven? The answer is no, friends. The cookies will taste the same whether the card is tattered or stained or not. And so it is with grace, the undiluted gospel. In our spirit, man, we are perfect. The tattered corners of our souls do not render null and void what Jesus' blood did for us on the cross. That's a statement, man, that ought to be on the marquee everywhere. Did you hear what I said? I said the tattered corners of our souls do not render null and void what Jesus' blood did for us. We are without stain. We are without wrinkle. We are without blemish. We are holy and blameless, cleansed by the washing with the water through the Word, and presented to Christ as radiant. Radiant before Him. My mind just doesn't comprehend that almost. That I'm as radiant as the sun before you? That's what he says. Every one of us have experienced darkness of soul. Times when we perceived were our darkest moments of life. Times when we whispered, God, how can you still love me? Come on. I want to assure you that in darkness of soul, you and I are more radiant than the very sun he hung in the sky. In other words, our light never burns out. Never goes out. Never needs to be replaced. He's put the light on the inside of us. It's the candle in our soul. Friends, 11 days from today, I will have worn that wedding ring for 21 years. Thank you, Valerie. I've never had it professionally cleaned, yet look how shiny it is. Now, if there is a precious metal that never tarnishes, never fades, and never gets dirty, don't you think that Jesus' blood can keep us clean? <laughs> of course it can. The problem lies within the way we think. We have been taught that our dirty deeds make us dirty, Friends, a dirty recipe card doesn't produce dirty cookies. Come on. Doesn't happen. There are no such scriptures in the new covenant to tell a new creation in Christ that he or she is dirty slips the beggar's coat back over their shoulders. 
I can see that happen in my own life. We just read that it is his life and his blood that makes us blameless and holy, cleansed without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish. Yet much of the church today will tell us that it's Jesus' blood plus our obedience that keeps us radiant. I know that sounds real spiritual, doesn't it? But it's nonsense and disrespectful. Listen, a man is not obligated to write out a check and send it to a lifeguard that saved him. Now, if you want to do that out of gratitude, if you want to do that out of thanksgiving, fine. If you want to do that out of appreciation, but you are not obligated. This is what he was put there to do. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save us. So anything, all of our little pitiful pences that we would try to do is not necessary. There is no such thing as 25 karat gold or 26 karat gold or 27 karat gold or 30 karat gold. Therefore, there is no way to make 24 karat gold pure. No way to do it. However, there is a way to make 24 karat gold less pure. Would you like to know how that's done? You can take 24 karat gold and turn it into 18 karat gold and 14 karat gold and 10 karat gold by melting it down and then adding alloys to it, such as copper and nickel and zinc. These are much less expensive metals, therefore much less precious. Friends, what Jesus gave us does not become impure even when we go into meltdown. Come on. How many of you went into a tirade somewhere in your life? How many of you went into a meltdown? You don't become any less pure in the midst of that. And I don't recommend them. I don't encourage them. I do not condone them. But I'm telling you, if you do, you do not become any less pure. Our salvation is by grace, the undiluted gospel. And we receive this grace through faith. And this is Jesus' faith that he gave us. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18-21, through 21, we find these words. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. You know I was going to work my way into that scripture, didn't you? Come on. <laughs> it's not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. He bought you out of. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. Look at these words. But with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. I hope you made note as we read those scriptures that silver and gold didn't get us out of anything that Adam created for us, right? You can't buy your way out of Adam through silver and gold. In other words, what he's saying. Rather, we were redeemed out of our empty way of life through the precious blood of Christ. It said a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect. His body was tattered. His body was stained, yet he was perfect. Do you see that? Stained! Tattered! Torn apart! A gruesome sight to look at, yet he was perfect. And that's the way we get sometimes tattered, a little tattered. 
a little stained. But that is in our bodies. That is in our souls, not our spirit man. Scriptures say, as he is, so are we in this world. Perfect in Christ. A little tattered in the body at times. A little stained in my way of thinking at times. But perfect where it counts. Friends, if you were to take the finest artist in the world and they were to take their paintbrushes and their color palette and then they added something to an original Vincent Van Gogh painting, no matter how beautiful their embellishments would be, it would be considered graffiti. When the Holy Spirit dropped that in my heart, I thought, wow, I get it. Because I've watched artists before, and they can draw, they can paint. I, I just, I'm mind-boggled by watching an artist. I can't draw for nothing. I can't paint for nothing. I mean, just not my gifting friends. But now imagine you've got a Vincent Van Gogh original, and he's all set with his brushes. Whoever the finest one in the world, whether it be a man or a woman, the finest one in the world. And you said, you know what? I want you to add an evergreen tree to that picture. I want you to add some hedges to this picture. I want you to paint a cow over there in the pasture. He would do that, and someone who wasn't familiar with that painting would go, wow, that's just a beautiful painting. He could do it so real, you wouldn't even know unless you looked under a microscope that it was added. But you know what you've done? You've added graffiti to the original. And when we add anything to Christ's finished work on the cross, it is graffiti, friends. It's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. You see, when a believer adds their own flair, their own twist, their own recipe, their own brush strokes, their own colors, and their own embellishments to the finished work of Jesus Christ, friends, it is considered graffiti. Now I understand Paul's heart. If you ever read the book of Galatians, you'll see it too. He wouldn't allow it, period. He wouldn't let you get away with it at all. I'm telling you, if you would have taken Vincent Van Gogh's painting and you said, all I want you to do is add one tiny, bitty, little, tiny sparrow, he'll almost not even be noticeable. That's still graffiti. You have ruined the original. You say, Pastor Mark, I need some help. What does the graffiti that believers add to Jesus' work of salvation look like? I mean, come on, be practical with me. I don't want to put graffiti on Jesus' grace. What does it look like? We add graffiti that is expressed through the alloys of performance, limitations, putting limitations on God, conditions on His grace, exceptions and expirations. That's graffiti. If we add the alloy of obedience to the new covenant, that's graffiti. What we have done is we have added our own sacrificial lamb. You know what it looks like. We fall back on the floor. We soak the carpet for a while. And then we beg God to forgive us when he's already taken away our sins. We're already forgiven, past, present, and future. We plead to the Father, can you just shriek the camel a little bit? Can you make the eye a little bit larger so that I've got hope? No, I'm telling you, the Father is not into shrinking camels, and He's not into enlarging the eye of the needle. It's a narrow way, friends. A big part of people cannot accept it can be that easy. 
Anything we add to Jesus' bloodstained cross in order to maintain our salvation is graffiti. My final scriptures come from Romans chapter 5, verses 15, 16, and 17. Look what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Justification means you are declared innocent. So beautiful. He says, but the gift followed many trespasses. It showed up after you've been sinning up to your eyeballs. You've been stuck in it. And he says, when it showed up, it brought justification. It brought a message for you. What's my message? Telegram, ah, you're declared innocent. For if by the trespass of the one man, that's Adam again, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Do you see how grace, his heart, do you see how everything is tied to the one man? The one man that Jesus told the rich man, there's only one that is good. My Father which is in heaven. Here he is affirming what he said. Again, back there he says, this gift of righteousness comes through the one man, Jesus Christ. (laughs) What kind of gift do we receive? The gift that doesn't demand our pitiful $2 in return. What kind of righteousness do we receive? The righteousness that causes us to reign in life. Not just get by. Not just get along. It causes us to reign in life. And how does this justification that they just talked about, this declaration of innocence, how does our justification come to us again? Friends, our justification comes by grace, the undiluted gospel, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Grace, the undiluted gospel, is new wine in new wine skins. We are not experiments And we are not chemistry lessons. We are new creations in Christ. We are not soldiers. We are sons. We are not deputies. We are daughters. The old covenant, the old nature, and the old wineskins have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Apostle Paul wrote that the law is good, but he said it's good when it's used properly. But he said, but we also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the ungodly and the unholy. You are not ungodly. You are not unholy, even in your darkest of soul moments, friends. 
The law is incapable of providing a one-time bath. It was the one-time bath in the blood of Jesus Christ that made us holy and godly. By grace, we are forgiven once for all. Our beggar's coats have been discarded and we are forever clean. To think that it's necessary for a sponge bath or to think that it's necessary for a complete bath is to empty the cross of its power. Friends, there are going to be days when our recipe cards get stained and tattered. I'm talking about our bodies. I'm talking about our soulish man. But those stains and tattered corners do not change the truth that in Christ we have been made the righteousness of God in Him. And there are going to be times when our actions, when the things we do, the things we say are not compatible with the mission of love. Hear the word of the Lord. Put your sword back in its place. Harness your emotions. And in those moments, dispense grace, the undiluted gospel, the kind of grace that gives and expects nothing in return. Friends, we can let go of our teddy bear religion. The law brings no comfort and the law is no companion. The law brings condemnation and no flesh is justified by the law. The law is an impossible standard and whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. Friends, if a man tries to claw his way to heaven by keeping the law, you know what? He'll end up a day late and a dollar short. To add our pitiful alloys to Jesus' finished work on the cross is like an artist adding embellishments to a Vincent van Gogh painting. It's graffiti. Through our own efforts, the camel remains big and the needle remains small. Like 24 karat gold, our righteousness never changes colors, never tarnishes, and never fades. We have been washed with His blood and through His word, which is far greater than silver or gold. Through Jesus' precious blood, He has made us holy, without blemish, blameless, I love this, wrinkle-free and stain-free. We have been cleansed once for all, and we have been presented to Jesus as a radiant bride. Hear the words again. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Friends, there are no alloys in Jesus' blood, only grace, the undiluted gospel. Father, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you for this word. In my prayer time, Daddy, I ask you to make it pure and to make it plain. Daddy, I ask you to Help me to minister it in a way that a child could understand it. Jesus, I remember those words that you said. You said, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. You said that because when you spoke, the children understood you. 
You see, somehow when we get grown up, we get all philosophical. We want to hold on to things because that's the way it's always been. That's the way my mama did it. That's the way my grandmother did it. That's the way my great-grandmother did it. And we've overlooked the simplicity of the gospel and have made the cross of Christ void. Father, I pray as this series begins that you'll continue to make it so plain and so pure that it's Christ plus nothing. And Daddy, I believe there's going to be times, I see it all the time, when our bodies and our souls, they get a little stained. They get a little tattered. But that doesn't change that we have been made perfect on the inside of us. Righteous, holy, blameless, without defect. As Christ is, so are we in this world. Father, I thank you. I thank you so much for the revelation of grace, the undiluted gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.